We're living in a world today that just feels wrong. From our jobs to our schools, and for some folks even their churches. It's as if we've slipped into some kind of dystopian future where things have gone off the rails so badly that we don't recognize our world any longer. If you're like me, sometimes it makes you sit back and wonder if I'm the only one that sees these things or if you're crazy. Look, I'm guessing if you're here and you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're seeking answers. Today I have a conversation with somebody that I think will give you those answers and let you know it's just not you and that you're not crazy and that something is very, very wrong. Her name is Julie Beeling. Julie is a mom and an author who served an LDS mission in Russia. After that, she attended university where she did her thesis on Christians in Soviet Russia. Julie then discovered some information that, quite frankly, is very disturbing. Julie has detailed and documented the communist infiltration into America's most trusted institutions, schools, and even our churches. Julie documents all of this in her book, Beneath Sheep's Clothing, and I can't recommend that book enough. Julie here breaks down what she saw on her mission in Russia, and then we discuss the infiltration of communist influence into America. Now, our first conversation only lasted an hour, and I was still left with a lot of questions, so she was gracious enough to come back on and do a part two. So as soon as you're done here, head right back to the website and check out part two. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Because of your generosity last year, I was able to buy better audio equipment and software. I can't tell you how much it meant to me that not only did you spend your time here with me on the podcast, but also that you found enough value in what I'm doing that you donated the podcast to upgrade it. This year, I want to continue to grow. Now, I want to add video to the podcast to continue to help you, my guests, and myself connect better through the show. The other feature I'm working on for this podcast is something I have to remain vague about for now. But what I can say is that it's something that will help us better connect as fundamentalists and traditional LDS folks. Now, to get that equipment for the video content I want to do and to build the infrastructure for the other project with this podcast, donations would certainly be welcome. Or you can go to mormonrenegade.com, click that supply store button and get some new swag. New stuff will be out soon as well. Now, if you can't afford to do either of those two things, I totally get it. Maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers that we'll be blessed with those resources. Again, thank you for everything you do as well as for listening to the podcast. I have been very careful on this podcast to only advertise for items that I feel will add value and purpose in your life. That said, I've discovered a book that I really believe should be in every Mormon's library. The book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing. In this book, the author, Julie Beeling, breaks down the communist infiltration into our schools, institutions, and perhaps even most distressing, our churches. The book backs up its claims with well-cited sources so you can go do the research yourself. This book will allow you to see the communist tactics and gives you the tools on how to combat this insidious movement in America. Julie is right now trying to raise money to make the book into a documentary, and I can't recommend donating to this cause strongly enough. So head over to mormonrenegade.com and you can find the link to buy the book and donate to the documentary in this episode page or scroll down to the very bottom of the landing page at mormonrenegade.com to find a link to buy the book.
You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Well, Julie, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So when I first heard about your book, I was super fascinated because public education has been something that, that I've talked about before here on the podcast and had people on. At what point did you decide you were going to like start homeschooling your kids? Well, I have one son and he's eight and I, I kind of actually assumed I would homeschool him from the get go before I even had him. I had him pretty late in life. Um, But then being the only child, he did attend like preschool, part-time preschool. And then I did end up, and I were, I've been working this whole time. I did put him in a charter school for kindergarten. This was the 2019, 2020 school year, which was interrupted. And once the mask mandates were, you know, came down for the next school year, I was like, no, we're not doing this. I'm not masking my then six-year-old. So I homeschooled him from that point. Um, I put him in a in a charter school again for a while, but have recently pulled him out and probably will be doing homeschooling or some sort of alternative schooling from here on out. So right on. So what was the impetus for the book? Oh, okay. Well, my book, Beneath Sheep's Clothing, um, it's that's a kind of a long answer to that question. I served an LDS mission in Russia in the late 90s. And was there, you know, pretty just a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I really got up close and personal with post-communist life in Russia. And I met a lot of people who had been very negatively impacted by communism, people who had spent time in the gulag, people who had been traumatized by the Stalinist era, Hmm. a lot of elderly people with really a lot of trauma. And... um, I, I came back from my mission and I ended up getting a dual master's at Florida State University, a dual master's in Russian language and literature and Russian and East European studies. And for my Russian and East European studies degree, I decided to to write a thesis. And I just felt drawn towards researching the Christians, the underground Christians during the Soviet Union. And then I kind of honed in more as I began my research, what exactly that would look like. And my interest in that came from my mission, from coming across, well, first of all, out of the, I don't know, like a thousand people or so that I asked if they believed in God in the course of my mission, I was very surprised that out of everyone I asked, there was only one person who said they were atheist. And I found that pretty shocking. Everyone was either, yes, I believe in God, or I'm open to believing in God and I'm searching. It was kind of a bit of a golden era in Russia. Let me ask you this. How did that come about? Because if you read Marx, he's very clear that that religion is the opium of the masses, right? right that right. that that this idea of of religion and a god is very it's almost threatening to to Marxism and Leninism because they have this idea that that the state was almost supposed to be God, right? Yeah, not almost. The state was God. Right. And the leader, the leader of the state was was God for sure. No, religion especially Christianity were some of the top um, enemies of communism and that had to be taken out. What they found, so that in the early decades of the Soviet Union, especially in the right at the beginning of it, they did mass arrests of um, Christian clergy, um, tortures, you know, executions, putting people in the prison camps. And it was a bloodbath. It was a bloodbath all around. And 
Um, of course, they they bombed churches. They you know demolished them. They they sacked them. They took out all of the, especially the Orthodox churches with a lot of gold and like jewel encrusted icons. They they you know sacked all of that. But what they found, but by World War II and during the most repressive years of Stalin, that there was actually enclaves of Christianity that were strengthening underground and that were gaining gaining more and more strength, and they could not extinguish religion. Um, and once the World War II ended and Stalin died, there was what they had the thaw, they called it the thaw. And so some of the really repressive things that had happened, especially in the 30s and 40s, early 50s with Stalin, that kind of lifted. And they actually let a lot of people go from the gulag early. And among those people were a lot of Christian clergy. And then there was a bit of a, a Christian and religious revival at that time in the mid 50s, 60s. And so, but the Soviet state kind of rearranged its, its tactics. And my master's thesis focused on the tactics, the anti-religious tactics from World War II, the end of World War II up until perestroika, until the mid eighties, because it was a more sophisticated set of tactics. And instead of just a brute force, we're gonna kill everyone or execute or you know imprison everyone. It was like, hmm, how can we do this more effectively? And so I really focused on the three what I discovered were the three main anti-religious tactics. And the first one was not really any secret, anti-religious propaganda combined with pro-communist propaganda in the schools, in the media, in all of the arts. Um, you know, poetry had to had to endorse communism. They they could not have poets that did not glorify communism. They could not have filmmakers that didn't glorify communism. There could be no sculptors or any musician or anything, everything had to glorify communism and make fun of religion, Christianity, of course, being foremost among those. And um, the second tactic was um, instead of keeping up their complete, just outright persecution of Christians, they backed off and they gave a lot of concessions, but they, they there was one group that they continued to persecute very heavily. And these were fringe Christian groups that did not go along with the government. They did not register with the government because there was a cost of registering with the government. You you basically would sign away different parts of your of your um, beliefs in order to register officially with the Soviet state. So the Christians that I studied that were the renegade Christians, the underground Baptists, underground Pentecostals, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they were still, they were enemies of the state, numero uno, and they had the mass state still after them all the way up through the mid-80s. Um, the third tactic was a new one that they developed that's pretty chilling. Probably their most effective um, anti-religious tactic was infiltration of the churches. And they did this with KGB agents who posed as would-be clergy going into the seminaries and going in to lead all the churches and to control the churches with, with from within. This was done. You know, as you were describing that, it, it's kind of chilling, right? Because oh, yeah. I think I think you can make a case that at least two of the three we're seeing right now today in no, the yeah, no, all three all, all three, three? Mm -hmm. I, I i didn't know how the registering part would work like you were saying well but the the government controls of the right church. right the, and and we saw that during covid right when when the government was able to say shut down the churches and everybody just shut down mm -hmm. that was that was spooky that was to me the First time I can remember where a a guaranteed right that that you know 
um, Madison had had made sure was there, right? The your mm-hmm. First Amendment right, mm-hmm. right to conscience that was compromised for the first time I can ever remember on a big scale. Mm-hmm. And what scared me is we just took it, mm-hmm. right? There there wasn't an outcry. Not so, so when when those folks are driven underground like that. Do you think that that Christianity still managed to spread, or do you think that that they could they did contain it? Well, I mean, both. Yeah, the Soviet state. There, were, I mean, there were millions of casualties, um, and of course, they did decimate the faith of many people. So, one of the things that was really common um, when I was a missionary there was meeting people who um, talking about baptism and they would say, Oh yeah, my grandma baptized me in the woods. So a lot of little Russian grandmas would take their little grandchildren out into the woods and baptize them secretly and would still transmit their faith to them. But they were most of, most of these types of Christians were taught They taught their kids that they had to pretend they had to just go along with the script um, to keep out of trouble. So there's a whole lot of that that went on. The ones that were the really hardcore people, the ones I studied for my thesis, I mean, these people were super (laughs) amazing. I mean, they risked life and limb on a regular basis. It was, you know, breaking the law just to have like a public baptism or, you know, to have, you know, teaching their kids to pray. There were some groups, um, some of the underground Pentecostals in particular, that the state would just revoke their parental rights and take their children and put them in state orphanages saying, well, you're abusing your child by teaching them to pray. So we're going to take your kids for their own protection. And um, of course, try to brainwash them. Hmm. So was that, so that was kind of the impetus for writing the book. Did you start seeing these things creeping into public education? And that was kind of what really led you to, to go for it? It didn't start with public ed- education. I wrote most of this book. Well, the first part of my book, um, again, Beneath Sheep's Clothing is the name of it. The subtitle is The Communist Takeover of Culture in the USSR and Parallels in Today's America. Um, I didn't have my son. I had, I had actually written most of this book before I even had my son. So I was not really focused on the education part of it. That came later. What, what actually caught my attention, interestingly enough, was in 2008, when the FLDS had their had El Dorado Ranch raided by the government mm-hmm. and had their children taken without due process. Yeah. That was a that was like a oh, this looks just like what the Soviets did to the Pentecostals. Yeah. And then I started looking more deeply. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not a fan of Warren Jeffs. Um, and from what from what you said earlier, you're not such a big fan of his either, but there's definitely some issues there. But that doesn't mean the government can just go in at, and just take over and not go through the proper legal channels and the proper due process and everything. So I, I started looking more deeply and I found all three of the tactics, the anti-religious tactics that I studied in my thesis. I saw them not just like a little bit, but like I saw it was just, yeah, it was bad. Holy and it only got worse. It only got worse the, the more time has gone on. It's gotten exponentially worse, especially with, um, well, it's it's gotten exponentially worse. We haven't seen the government come against um, another church 
since 2008 in the same way that you know was big on the news but i i predict that we will if there are churches and groups of christians who defy the government i predict that we will see such things increase that is so spooky and and you're right as far as the flds and and what's interesting is is that if you look at the history of of the flds and mm-hmm. um I, I, I hope I'm getting the name right. I, I, I might be wrong, but I believe the man's name was um, uh, Leroy Johnson. I might be wrong, but he was the original leader of the FLDS church. And this was back in like the 40s and the 50s. And for all intents and purposes, he was he was a pretty decent guy, right? He wasn't rearranging families. He wasn't doing anything like that. And so what you have is once the Short Creek raids started to happen, it forced those people underground. And yes. whenever you force a people into the shadows, you set them up for one of two things. One is, is constant distrust and yeah. maybe turn them a little bit militant, which didn't necessarily happen this time. Right. Or you set them up to become victims of a tyrant. Absolutely. And that's what the short Creek raids really did because it allowed, it allowed the the Jeff's family to come in there, starting with his with Warren's dad to come in there and see, say, look, they really are after you. So right. you listen to me and I'm going to keep you safe. And when when that happens, it's brutal. It's yeah. absolutely brutal. Anytime you force a, 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 a church, a people, a subculture into the shadows. One of those one of two things is going to happen every time. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And and so I find it's interesting that the government creates the problem essentially and mm-hmm. then has to try to fix the problem only they once again just violate all sorts of constitutional rights mm-hmm. in in getting it done. Mm-hmm. The other the other big example of the government going after um, a fringe religious organization which is even worse than the 2008 one was the Branch Davidians of yep. Waco 1993 and I was graduating from high school I was like in my final month of high school when that happened and so I just believed whatever I saw in the news but when I delved into that I would say out of everything I researched the treatment of the Branch Davidians and what happened there we don't know everything but what we do know is horrific it's it's it is absolutely one of the worst things I've ever researched and what I could I was probably, I'm guessing I was a sophomore in high school when that was going down. Mm-hmm. And what I remember most is I kept asking the question, well, what did they do wrong? Right. right? What, what was it that was going on that caused the government to show up in the first place? I was young, but, and I, wa- I wasn't raised Mormon of any stripe. So I was a troublemaker. So I understood you could get away with a lot as long as you weren't raising eyebrows, right? So I was always like, what, what was it that those folks did that caused the eyebrows to raise? And I've heard things like they were amassing weapons or, or something like that. But it seems to be a pretty weak argument to show up with the amount of force that they did. Yeah. And, and you can correct me here, but I'm going to say this. Both Ruby Ridge... And the Branch Davidian debacle happened under the same administration, the same party. And, and you got to ask I, them, what's that? I think Ruby Ridge, so 
was Ruby Ridge Bush? It, I think it was because the branch to be okay. Clinton, Clinton had just been inaugurated like the month before, like month and a half before the raid on the Branch Davidians. So Ruby Ridge must have happened before that. But it was the same BL, it was the same um ATF um right. leadership. Then and from from what I've researched under Clinton, they did get more they did get additional funding and they kind of wanted to show the new president, this was only part of the puzzle that they that they were going to be doing a lot of great things protecting America. And so they needed to put on a big show to, to even lobby for more funding. That's one aspect of it. But there's other clues um, that I can't prove, but there's other clues that let's just say that that Bill and Hillary Clinton may have been putting this show on to, to try to scare religious organizations into compliance. There's evidence for that. I, I can't prove it, but there's evidence for it. And not just them, other other players in the government as well. So So as as you as you researched your book and you started to put the pieces together, mm-hmm. how far how far along that revolutionary road are we? The thing is nobody knows nobody knows exactly how things are gonna unfold. I mean, we're pretty far gone. We're pretty far gone, but a mass awakening of people and mass people standing up and, and awakening to what's really going on can, I think, prevent some of the worst plots from, you know, unfolding completely. But we're not going to escape some crazy times. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> when when I watched when I watched the riots happen, the I believe it was the summer of 2020. Uh, after George Floyd was killed, and that was that was horrible, right? I, I'll never say that that was right or whatever. But you could tell that a lot of the riots that were happening weren't necessarily grassroots. Yeah, right. Yeah. These these had been orchestrated. It, they'd been orchestrated. Thank you. Yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. And if you read Marx and you understand that that conflict has to exist before communism can take root. And you heard some of the things that they were saying, it was really spooky. And that caused me to go look at black lives matter Inc and look at just the website. Right. And so I, I get on there and the first thing they talk about is that they want to disrupt the nuclear family, going back to what Hillary Clinton had said about, you know, it takes a village sort of a thing. But if you, again, go back to Marx, you can see the seeds, right? Because Marx was all about the idea of getting rid of the bourgeois family, that it needed to go away and that those kids were the property of the state, not the parents. Yeah. The other thing that I discovered is that the actual founder was a trained Marxist. She admitted it. So it it was really spooky to see it because – I, I really came of age. I can remember when the when the wall fell, which was really the I mean, this the USSR hadn't completely fallen yet, but that was kind of like, oh no, you're they're done, right? This is the death throes. And so it was weird for me to have to look at all this and go, okay, it didn't die. It just changed. They just took off a military uniform and put something else on. Well, it gets even when you look further into the roots of communism in America, you see that 
This is probably one of the most controversial parts of my book, but it's probably not going to be controversial to you or your audience. You look back at the roots of, let's say, infiltrating America's churches with communists, which was done beginning well over 100 years ago, infiltrating the, the school well, as public school was being developed, well, pushing it in with socialism and communism. Um, this was funded by like the Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie mm -hmm. Foundation. And guess who funded the Russian Revolution and funded Lenin? It was the same people. It's mon monopolistic capitalists from America. I think there were some maybe from Germany that helped fund it too. But they're the same people. The same people, they began infiltrating things here, organizations here in America with communism and funding Lenin in the Soviet Union. So let, let me ask you this, Julie, because I'm always fascinated with this. And I, I don't doubt you for a minute because I've seen a lot of evidence that points to that. But I haven't been able to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. Communism at its core is, is really anti-capitalistic. You can make an argument they dig state capitalism. Mm -hmm. But even that, I mean, a true blue, well-taught Marxist strives for this global takeover. Right, that that the revolution has to sweep the globe in order for it to be truly successful. Right. Why would folks like the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, those sorts of people, why would they throw their lot in with them? Because they made their money from a capitalist system. What what was the draw to get the Rockefellers and the Carnegies to to jump into that? Well, they made their money over there too, because Russia was just beginning to industrialize. And so they were able to go and make money off of the industrialization of Russia. And that's one thing. Number two, it's all about control. And, and these people, you have, they're not true capitalists. They're monopolistic capitalists. They want to keep themselves and their family lines at the top of the heap. Con communism is a, a handy control grid to keep the rest of the masses down. Sure. No, that makes, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Another question I got for you. And, and I feel like this is really important, especially for some of my LDS listeners. Mm -hmm. How, when, when you talk about infiltrating the churches, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we can see that, right? With the uh, church that like Barack Obama attended and, um, and Oprah Winfrey attended where, you know, um, Jeremiah Wright, I believe his name is. Yes. You can go Google him and find all sorts of just horrible things he said. When when you say infiltrate, are are you talking about they actively place, for lack of a better word, operatives in the pews, or are they banking on this idea of culture, re-educating the younger generation, and then the younger generation unknowingly does the the infiltrating in the churches for for those in power? What, All of the above all of the above and infiltrating at the top leadership levels. Now, I will say this, out of the major churches in America, there is less evidence of communist infiltration into the LDS church than there is into any of the others. Um, That's good to know. So, but that, but there still is more recently, it's getting problematic, but what, what, so when I'm talking infiltration of America's churches, what I mean is that 
on paper, it's all there, the evidence that by mid-century, mid-20th century, upwards of half of America's mainline Christian churches were infiltrated at the top. And so what, what Rockefeller, what he did is he funded um, different operatives to go into the seminaries and then become heads of seminaries and then be training mm -hmm. the pastors especially for the, the was called first it was called the federal council of churches and then it changed its name to the national council of churches because it started getting a bad rap because people saw that they were being infiltrated um, at the time it was happening and what they did what these operatives did is they went in and they they started changing doctrines and they started casting doubt on the divinity of jesus now that's fine if you have doubt in the divinity of jesus but that's a little strange for a christian pastor to cast doubt on the divinity of jesus yeah, I mean, maybe you're in the wrong profession if you don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. Don't be a Christian pastor. But they, they began preaching from the pulpits, casting doubt on the virgin birth, casting doubt on Jesus as a savior. You know, Jesus was just a prophet. He was just a good person. And then what they switched, they did a little switcheroo. Instead of having the focus, the, as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, the kernel of Christianity is that Mankind has fallen and God sent Jesus to atone for the sins of mankind. We can, we can turn ourselves over to Jesus, become one with him and we can be, we can be saved. Right. Is there right. Is that? That's, that's a pretty good encapsulation uh, of, I would okay. say just about all Christianity. If That is the kernel of Christianity. What they did, what these operatives did is they, they went in there and instead of making it about an individual relationship with God and about um, redemption from sin, it became a social justice gospel. They peeled away the aspect of Christianity where we are supposed to do service to those in need. Absolutely. But they peeled that away from the relationship with God aspect, discarded the relationship with God, or at least the focus on it. And now the focus is social justice. And of course we need people in this world who care about the downtrodden. That's it's essential. And you can see how easy it would be to, to play that switcheroo game. So now um, it's gotten, you know, much more apparent by now, but even by the mid fifties, they had half of the churches, half of mainline Christian churches in America bamboozled with this. And then even by the sixties, you'd see the national council of churches putting out pamphlets for teenagers, trying to strip away at the principle of chastity and encouraging teenagers that it's okay to go and play around and see what you like. You would expect that from certain organizations, but not from an organization representing half of America's Christian churches. And there's there's more. Then you get into the Black Liberation Theology, which you mentioned, Jeremiah yeah. Wright. Um, liberation Theology, that's how communism spread in Latin America and like Colombia and those different places. They used Catholic priests. They, they trained Catholic priests to be Marxist operatives to go in and rally up the the peasantry to, to turn against, you know, and of course the, the peasants in Latin America were highly oppressed. Um, it's not hard to find oppressed people in the history of the world. So it's very brilliant. Marx's whole plan, find some oppressed people, get them, rile them up to anger against their oppressor and get them to tear down society. Then the Marxists will come in and take power. And then, Oh, everyone gets to still be oppressed. Yay. Um, but liberation theology in Latin America came out just a little before black liberation theology and all the evidence points to black liberation theology in America being, being a KGB operation. 
And what's really interesting, and I haven't seen anyone mention this anywhere, I've discovered this in my research, that the guy who founded, he's credited with founding Black Liberation Theology, which for anyone who's not familiar, it puts this, um, it's, I mean, it was before wokeism became big, but it puts the plight of Black people being oppressed and white people being the oppressors at the heart of the Christian message. It's like this marriage between Christianity and a struggle for um, preeminence or just a struggle for um, to reduce oppression amongst Black people. You can see how they could be tricked because obviously Black people have been oppressed throughout history in America. Anyways, <clears throat> but the, the man who was credited with, with um, founding Black liberation theology, Reverend um, Cohn, he says that it was this, this white couple um, Boyack, I can't remember their first names. Their last name was the last names were Boyack. That they were this head of this Methodist seminary in like Iowa or someplace where he was studying, and they gave him the idea and they encouraged him to to come up with this new theory. Well, I looked into this couple, and I have to look at their names. Really, cool. Oops. no, you're good. Um, guess where they came after they after they? I I think they're KGB operatives. Guess after they they got this guy to come up with black liberation theology to infiltrate the Christian churches for so many of black Americans. They came to Salt Lake city, Utah, and they became movers and shakers in the Christian realm, not the LDS, but the, the Christian societies in Salt Lake city. And in fact, they became high up with in Westminster college. Wow. In Salt Lake. Um, one of them was the Dean of students. They're both passed away. One of them was the, dean of um, admissions or something and anyways they won all these awards for their work and um how much do you want to bet they were they were tearing down aspects of true christianity in salt lake and promoting marxism instead yeah i don't, I, know. I don't know that full story i don't doubt it for a minute and going back to the whole social justice thing yeah I remember when that started to really, when, when I first caught wind of this, I want to say it was probably midway through Obama's second term and it became a buzzword, right? Social yeah, yeah. justice, social justice. And you start peeling back the layers, especially within a religious context. Cause at first yeah. from a religious context, you're like, well, I guess I can see that to a degree, right? We, we do yeah. as Christians, we are commissioned to go and relieve the suffering of others. Yeah. Um, so I can see that. But then what, what got me is, is it moved from a, a salvation comes to a person based on a relationship between you and deity, in this case, Christ, right? Where you would be like, I accept him as my savior. I'm going to throw all, you know, I'm going to rely on his atonement. And it became more of this, quasi spiritualistic pardon the expression bastardization between organized religion and a communist effort because there was this idea of we can't be saved unless we're all saved and in order to get there uh we have to do certain things within the churches almost like what you'd see on a national communistic front it was really spooky when i started putting those pieces together so today we we don't see as much you said in the LDS church which I am so glad for. Do you think that that's maybe an outgrowth of I was sitting here thinking about it. 
One is, is that I can't think of another religion that claims the um, founding documents of the United States, things like the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. I mean, darn near scripture. And then the other is, is that you had the administration of Ezra Taft Benson during the, uh, what was it, late 70s, Mm -hmm. early 80s, if I'm not mistaken, as the, um, that was before my time as being a Mormon. So I, I'm trying up to, until the early, up until the early nineties, early nineties. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Do, do you think that's why the LDS church has been able to escape some of that was just because yeah. that's left over? Yes, I do. And, but there's a problem. So, so I wrote most of my book in 2009 through 2011. And then I just couldn't finish it. And then I pulled it out in the summer of 2021. I was like, it's now or never. I've got to finish this book. And then I caught, there's the, you know, there, I had to catch it up to modern day. And boy, things have gotten way worse with education. Uh, things have gotten way worse with the churches. And what we've seen in more recent years is we've seen, because because to the time that I'd written the book by 2011, I, I thought it's just half of the America's churches that are infiltrated with communism. But where we're at now, the evangelical churches have been hardcore infiltrated um, at this point from the top. The people, the adherents are like, what is going on here? No, but it's from the top, they've been infiltrated. And we see signs of infiltration of wokeism, which is woke, wokeism is neo-Marxism mm-hmm. um, in the LDS at BYU, there's professors at BYU that teach, you know, the gender fluidity and that they teach against the binary genders, which that is um, gender theory, which is part of woke neo-Marxism with the whole point to to destroy the binary genders because the binary genders are supposedly a relic of oppression. Um, But anyway, so we do see infiltration now and is that from the top or is that from whatever? I don't, I probably, maybe not the top, but it is spreading like a virus throughout society. It's, and it's within, there is some evidence that some leaders have kind of tiptoed into that direction. Um, and people really need to understand what that is, you know, and that's a whole other can of worms, you know, the gender theory, the queer theory of Marxism, and then the whole gay agenda and then yes, we get to be loving and respectful of all people. And how do we, how do we balance all of that? But once you understand that the agenda is a Marxist agenda to tear down the family, to tear down the binary genders, and to um, create as much chaos as possible in society, um, then you can and you can see how that agenda operates. And we probably don't have time to go into all of that. Um, but there's a lot of information out there. I do go into it in my book as well. But um, we have to separate that agenda from the people who are gay or are whatever and, and have love and respect. There's a seat at the table in society for everyone, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're whatever you are. Everybody gets to participate in our society and everyone is worthy of respect. But we don't need to let our, our worry of being seen as judgmental, keep us from speaking out against pornography in, in school libraries, um, which is rampant through Utah. Let me just tell you one quick story. Um, I was talking with one of my closest friends. I live in Hurricane, Hurricane down in Washington County. It's one of the most conservative towns. It's a very highly conservative town. 
it's a hotbed. I would say it's a hotbed of conservatism here. We have one high school. One of my good friends, her daughter is a senior there. Her, her, she said her daughter performed at her at Hurricanes High's um, talent show a couple weeks ago. And right before she went on, I guess she was singing. A kid um, came on stage and came out of the closet and then did a drag show. And then the whole school was on their feet, roaring with clapping and cheering. Um, and, you know, I don't want any gay child to be oppressed or, you know, anyone to make fun of them, but to cheer on a drag show, that's going a bit far at, at a, a drag show at a public school. I think we've gone a little bit too far there. And this isn't a hotbed of conservatism, that that's what the kids are doing. So. And, and I'm like you, right? I don't want anybody to have to live in the shadows. I think I've pointed that out before. That's, that's yeah. a recipe for disaster. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like, I feel like those matters need to be reserved for home, right? right. So or at not, least an adult setting, not not yes. a not a school talent show, right? right? And that's and that's where I have major concerns. My other concern is is that it it appears to me, and and this this I'll probably get a strike on YouTube for this, and that's okay too. But it, it appears to me like a lot of this seems to be the in vogue thing now right oh, yeah. where where um kids are saying that they're trans or whatever yeah but they're lauded right and when you start talking about victimization seems to be the new social capital upon which our society is operating the the best thing you can do for your own social standing at that point is to become a member of the oppressed class right exactly. and then we hearken back to marx and we start talking about opposition versus Versus, you know, the the bourgeoisie who has it, you know, has the power or that sort of thing. And it just foments more and more um, conflict, which is exactly what Marxism aims for. Yeah. Yeah. This gender theory and queer theory um, where they're queering our children with the social and emotional learning and they can do it in any number of ways. They, they can teach. And there's I, I am a firm believer and there's a lot of evidence for this, that there are operatives in schools and honestly utah has been a prime target for this because in utah yes we, we traditionally are a very conservative state but we're also very trusting and trusting and respectful of authority and so i it, there's a lot of evidence i'm not the only one saying this that utah has been a special um, little guinea pig to see how far they can push it in fact a friend of mine says that the 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 wife of our Governor Cox had in an email had said that her goal was to push Utah as far as close to California with its education as possible, oh. as much as you get away with in Utah. But in any case, what they're doing is the kids. So, you know, there's the critical race theory where the, mm -hmm. the oppressed. So Marxism is all about oppressor versus oppressed. The oppressed class with critical race theory is people of color. The oppressor class is not just white people, not just white supremacists, but whiteness, whatever right. whiteness is, anything can be made to be a relic of whiteness, including a constitution. And so the kids, then, you know, they do these like different exercises, these different privilege exercises and the kids with more privilege that are Christian, white, heterosexual, they're made to feel guilty. And then the way that they can atone for their sin of privilege 
is to either become part of the oppressed class or become an ally. But it's even better to become part of the oppressed class. And if you can pick from like six different genders and sexualities, listen, one of my best friends has seven kids and her family, she and her husband got divorced a couple of years ago and there was a bit of upheaval for her kids. And now she has two of her kids are somewhere on the queer spectrum. And that's not how they were raised. And honestly, I doubt that that's organic. I really think that that is James Lindsay is a great anti-communist for people to research. And he calls the, the, um, the SEL social emotional learning training. That's especially hardcore for high school and middle schoolers. He calls it cult grooming in the classroom. And the religion of choice is the woke neo-Marxism. Well, and, and I think you hit on another thing. I think, I do think that the Marxists learned and I think they learned that mankind naturally seeks out religion. Yes. Whether, yeah. whether we want to admit it or not, mankind naturally seeks out a religious structure. Always has, yeah. always will. Yeah. And so I think the Marxists got smart in the sense of, okay, we need to try to feed the, the souls of these people something that resembles that. Because yes. if you look at what's going on now, and, and you described it perfectly, my daughter who came home from, from college one semester had the book White Fragility by yeah. that yeah. she was forced to read. And I remember Probably I was like, yeah. yes, I was like, give me that book. Right. Yeah. And so I started looking at it and, uh, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Because what it described, and, and you laid it out here really well, Julie, is it's almost a repentance process, yeah. right? Where you recognize if you're a white heterosexual individual, that is your sin, yeah. right? And yeah. even though you may not be able to, quote, overcome your sin in this instant, you should still go through these repentance steps process where you ask for forgiveness. And, and then maybe if you're lucky, you can then find yourself in one of those oppressor classes. So this is very much a religion. It's not a, a, it's not a religion we would recognize per se, because the savior in this aspect seems to be society slash the state. And yeah. so as you can gain um, social cred in that way, it feeds into this whole religion, religious feel to this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I have some friends, like I, one of my best friends works with an organization in Salt Lake that serves the homeless. And she finds herself around a lot of like woke people and social justice people. And so she's confused and I'm like telling her, look, here's how you can tell whether you're doing service to humanity or you've gone in the woke direction. Are you trying to tear some, some aspect of society down or are you just trying to help people? If you're just trying to help people, she's going and helping homeless people. Is she trying to like destroy part of society? No, she's not. She's not gone too far. But what they take this good impulse that so many of us have to help other people and want to help the underprivileged, if then we then take that to hurl bricks at the courthouse and, <laughs> you know, take a bike lock to someone's head or want to destroy, uh, you know, different aspects of society in a very violent way, then you might be going in the direction of woke Marxism. Right. So. Right. As, as I've watched this all unfold and I've watched how it's instituted, uh, excuse me, how it's infiltrated public education. It's absolutely frightening. Yeah. 
So I've said this before on, on the podcast, I'm a huge fan of the founders of, of the country, the founding fathers. I moved back to Maryland for five years just so I could be closer to the history. Um, and what, what scared, what scared me the most is when I had my sophomore, my oldest son was a sophomore and he came home and I remember we were just sitting around the table eating dinner and, uh, he looked at my picture of Washington, uh, praying at Valley Forge. And he's like, did you know he was a right, a, a white rich slave owner? And I just kind of dropped my fork. I'm like, where the hell did you hear that? And why in my house are you saying that? And I mean, we had long conversations just to, to try to get that removed because they, they did. They absolutely did. And when I see how well they've done it, my fear is, is that what they did to the founders in education, they're now doing to Mormonism in particular now, right? Because there's this new movement within Mormonism where it's like, well, we, you know, there's certain parts of Mormonism that's redefining who Joseph Smith was and then out and outright calling Brigham Young an usurper and those sorts of things. And it's Mm -hmm. really the same tactic that they used with the founders, right? Of the country is, is that if you can discredit the founder or the early, um, progenitor i guess of of that idea you can discredit the idea and so what they did with the founders i think is now underway um across mormonism spectrum right mainstream lds and fundamentalists alike and i've said for a while all our kids are on the on the chopping block at this point they're doing the same thing i also agree with you that utah is a special case for i think utah and texas i feel like I, I think there's this feeling of if we can get it done in those two states, we can get it done anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and back to what you said about attacks against the LDS church. I'm, I'm not currently active in the LDS church, but I'm very LDS friendly. And I, I still share the foundational truths. So I feel very close to the LDS church still. Um, but what I believe just from my research and just from this whole pattern of everything I I think they hold the churches hostage. I'll just say in general, the churches are held hostage and churches that go, that will defy the government, you know, they, they'll cut off a finger, they'll whatever. And I see these things more and more in the news against the LDS church. What we need to do is we need to get the word out to all, you know, like you said, the LDS spectrum, we should expect mass disclosure of ill deeds from leaders whether they're real or not i don't know but we should expect that and that's a good sign that means that the leaders of the church are actually standing up to the government if we don't see that that's when you have to worry because that means that the lds church will just go with the lds church at this moment is capitulating to the government i believe that any church in the next coming years that doesn't capitulate and go full woke or fully allow or much more than currently um, allow the infiltration of these Marxist ideologies to proliferate through their churches. Any church that doesn't do that, especially a major church is going to be massively lambasted and they will mostly do it through propaganda. If there's a small church that is a special threat for whatever reason, then they could get the, you know, the Branch Davidian FLDS treatment 
Um, LDS church is so large, they probably wouldn't be able to get away with that. This is one little thing this, in the Soviet Union. They focused their heavy hand on the churches that no one liked. No one liked the Baptists or the Pentecostals or the Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses. They were all considered cults in Russia because they were not Orthodox. So it was, they were very easy targets. In America, Branch Davidians were made to be easy targets. Um, a lot of what was said about them was not true. Some of it was true. Same thing with FLDS, easy targets. Some of what was they've been accused of is true. Some of it not. Um, but with the LDS church, they will, what they'll, they'll put out more and more dirt on different leaders, present, past, whatever. And again, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but we should expect that. And we should actually tell, we need to like tell the church, Hey, we would rather that they come out with smear campaigns every single day and you stand up to them than to capitulate and not have those smear campaigns. You're... And we just, Sorry, we, just go need, ahead. we just need to become immune to the smear campaigns. And maybe, and maybe some of them will be true and we can research that for ourselves, but it's going to, we're going to need to be able to have our heads on straight and be able to also realize that Jesus himself said that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. Every church, every church is going to have some really bad apples in high positions at different times. The Catholic church, hello, there's been some bad, you can see some bad apples going on there throughout history. So an LDS church is not going to be immune. Any church, any major church, I 100% promise you this, this is one of the main things I came away with for my thesis and my book. Any major church of influence is a major target for infiltration. Whether it, how deeply it's infiltrated, that's a question, but it will be a ma any major church that is a, a big influence for good is going to be a major target. And they've been in this game for over a hundred years working to infiltrate. There's there's no way that there haven't been some operatives placed within the LDS church. That, that, that would be impossible. And I will say one other thing that I, that I discovered an article um, showing that the Communist Party USA, this was in the 30s, I believe, the 1930s, they actually sent, they actually recruited their members. These were people who had were no longer Christian. They were Communist Party members. They asked them to go back into their churches of origin and pose as, oh, I'm back. But then to behind the scenes, try to, you know, do some funny business. And there was one of the people that, that was showcased in the article was Mormon. And I just don't know what he was able to accomplish. I don't have that information. I don't know if anyone does, but we, we have to assume every Jesus said there's the wheat and the tares. There's the wolves in sheep's clothing. Every church is going to be infiltrated and we just have to look for the signs of that and just keep our heads on straight. And we need to have our focus, our relationship with God first and foremost, and not in any one person or body of people that we call leaders. Sure. Sure. Great stuff. Okay. I know we said we had to keep this to an hour today. So real quick, let's plug the book again and tell people where they can find it. Sure. You can grab my book, Beneath Sheep's Clothing. Again, The Communist Takeover of Culture in the USSR and Parallels in Today's America. It's on Amazon. Um, you can also go to my website, beneathsheepsclothing.com. I do have um, where you can get the first couple chapters of the book for free. Um, I also am in the in the end stages of putting together three homeschool lessons for parents, whether you homeschool or not, their fees are for teenagers. And for, it's all the information that is crucial, that I believe is crucial for teens to understand about freedom and tyranny. The first lesson is available for free on my website right now. It's called Why Does Freedom Matter? 
The second one is the anatomy of tyranny. And it goes through in all the some of the main ways that you can tell that there's a tyranny, censorship, you know, different things like that. The third one is um, the ideology of wokeism. It's a two-part lesson. I'm still hammering out a few little details on that. Um, and then the last thing, I'm actually uh, working with a documentary filmmaker and we're making a documentary with this content on my book. If, That's um, awesome. Yeah, the trailer of the documentary, um, he's working on it and then we'll be doing fundraising. If there's anyone who wants to contribute or knows someone who might want to help fund um, a work like this, really a wake-up call to America's Christians, America's parents with kids in school and just patriots in general, um, you can shoot me an email at beneathsheepsclothing at gmail.com. And um, we're going to be hopefully getting this documentary completed this year. That's awesome. I will, uh, I'll put that information in the episode page notes and people can, can go there and, and definitely donate to it. Cause I feel like it's worth it. All right, Julie, anything else you want to say in conclusion? Uh, yeah, I do. I want to say one more thing. When I wrote my master's thesis, the biggest takeaway I had, I looked at the different tactics of the different Christians and, um, different religious organizations and how their survival tactics and which ones were most associated with success and failure of those groups. And what I discovered, um, the, the underground Pentecostals were the most successful and they were also the most decentralized. The ones, the churches that had more highly centralized leadership, once those leadership was infiltrated, like the Seventh-day Adventists that I studied, they were very highly centralized. And they were once they were once the top leadership was breached, it was game over for them. But with the Pentecostals, their philosophy was what they called the priesthood of the believer, that individuals could connect with God to know what their calling was, their function within the church and just in society. And they encouraged people to, oh, you feel called to go preach in this city? Go for it. You feel called to do this? Great. So they, and the centralized leaders were much less prominent. Um, the people were more empowered to have that connection with God. And therefore, they, when they would have, you know, different leaders of the church would be arrested, the church would function just as normal. It didn't impact things all that much. So I would really, it's, it's, I really feel that's an important message for Christians in America today and the world over is that it's our connection with God and knowing our own function. What is it that we're here to do? Um, that is first and foremost, and we don't need to sit around and wait for any leader of any church you know, to, to tell us everything to do. That's perfect. That's awesome. Julie, let's do this again. Okay, sure. So I really liked it. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Hang out for just a few minutes too here, Julie. Okay. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.